Hey, welcome to an episode of Crippled by Culture, where we talk about everything in life and relate it to the disability and chronically ill community. My name is Sean Gold, and I am an author, advocate, and nonverbal public speaker for the disability community. To provide a quick visual description for accessibility, I'm a Black man with a white tracheostomy tube, breathing tube in my neck. I'm wearing a black shirt. This video is of a Zoom call with me and the person talking for me in one box off screen, and my guest is in the other box below it. Today, I would like to thank Adam Ross for being my voice in this episode. In this episode, we are talking about the intersections of life with cerebral palsy and embracing the social model of disability versus the medical model of disability. Before we get any further into the interview, I want to give a shout out to our partnering nonprofit festival for the series, Festability. As a board member, I helped put together a wonderful event in St. Louis at the Missouri History Museum. We had so many activities and vendors set up all over with an amazing headliner for our main stage. Getting to do this event was a dream come true. It is the best event in St. Louis to celebrate your disability unapologetically. Make sure you come out later this year. More information will be available soon. Thank you Festability for sponsoring the series. Now, back to the show. Now, let's get to today's amazing guest. Victoria Wheeler is a 32-year-old woman who was born prematurely with an official diagnosis of spastic diplegia, cerebral palsy, within my first year. She had SDR surgery at the age of four. She is a full-time wheelchair user. She's even college educated with a degree in Spanish. She is developing a passion for disability advocacy and activism, as well as handmade art and crafting. Victoria, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. How are you doing? I'm all right. Good. Bit Which, Good. Yeah. Okay, that's okay. Hey, we will, you know, it's going to be good. Yeah. Um, so we're just so glad you're here. Um, would you mind giving a visual description of yourself, please? I am a white woman seated in a wheelchair. I am wearing purple headphones and a black top. And let's see, oh, I also have glasses. I am seated in the corner of a room at a desk for this interview. I appreciate that. First, do you identify with having a disability or chronic illness? Yes. How does your disability affect your everyday life? Oh, that's a loaded question. Um, well, I am what I would consider to be like a mid-support needs disabled person. I am fairly mobile, like around the house in a walker. But to go long distances and like anywhere outside of the house, I am a full-time wheelchair user. And I do need... Um, assistance with like activities of daily living ADLs for those who know um, but not as much as other people need. I often feel like 
I'm disabled, but also not disabled enough. Very relatable. And um, do you feel like there are other things going on that you feel are not diagnosed? Um, I suspect uh, that I am somewhere on the autism spectrum. I remain like a self-diagnosed autistic after going through an official diagnosis process and then telling you that I wasn't in fact on the spectrum. I've considered going back in a few years um, to get reassessed, but that's, you know, to be determined. Gotcha. Did you have to go through your own internalized ableism? Oh, definitely. I would say that, um, you know, I grew up in a family that was like well-meaning. I grew up in a family where no other person in like my extended family, my dad and his sisters and like my cousins and aunts and uncles, none of them have a physical visible disability. Um, some of them are neurodiverse, some of them have ADHD, um, but nobody else was physically disabled. So I didn't grow up a lot around a lot of disabled folks. And I was in mainstream classes in school and I just kind of grew up with this mindset that like I can do anything I put my mind to. And no, I'm not disabled because I'm I'm smart and this and that. And you know, I had to contend with like you can be smart and you can be like capable of doing things that other disabled people cannot do, but you in fact are still disabled and that's okay. Like it took me probably the better part of 26, 27 years, I'm 32 now, to like come to terms with the fact that, hey, I'm disabled and that's perfectly fine. Absolutely, yeah. And if you don't mind, can you explain what the SDR surgery is? And um, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, um, actually, that's good. Just starting with what the surgery is. From my understanding, because I had it when I was so young, and it was within the first round of, of those types of surgeries done in the country, um, it stands for selective dorsal rhizotomy, and they um, cut rootlets out of my spine to help improve my um, muscle control and, like, reduce spasticity in my muscles. I have most spasticity in my legs. That's the limbs that are affected by the cerebral palsy. And I have more in my hands and arms, but less than in my legs. So that helped with, like I said, spasticity and um, trunk control and posture. My mom said that before the surgery, I had a hard time even sitting up on my own, like unassisted. Yeah, what would you tell patients and their parents considering the surgery? I've thought about that for a long time, and I don't really know, honestly, because I didn't know too much. I wasn't given much detail about it being so young, so I'd have to sit down and think about that one. Very understood. I, I do follow an Instagram account run by a mom whose kid had SDR also at the age of four. And she kind of advocates for her daughter and like connects with other parents and gives her advice on like therapies to participate in and whether or not they would consider the surgery. So 
she's the person that I would talk to. I, I don't really know much about it. Like, I just know that I had it done. I wish I did no more. Maybe I should learn about it. We both have CP. Would you mind going into detail what specific type you have and how it affects you since it's different for everyone? Yeah. Um, I have my official diagnosis, like as put in the bio, is spastic diaplegia. Spastic diaplegia is where, you know, you have either hypotonic or hypertonic muscles, meaning like either really low muscle tone or really high muscle tone. Everything causes spasticity. And the diaplegia means um, two limbs are affected. So for me, it's, I have hypertonia in my legs. Um, I do not walk unassisted. Um, some people with spastic diaplegia can walk unassisted, but I use a walker for short distances, like I was saying. And outside of the house, I save a lot of time and energy by using a power chair, which is really nice. I'm very fortunate to be able to have that. Um, let's see. And what I've noticed as I've gotten older is it affects my arms and hands and like my fine motor skills a lot more than I originally thought it did. Like when I was younger and in school, I would write a lot slower than the other kids and I had, I had trouble doing things like cutting out pieces of paper and drawing in a straight line. And I didn't know that I needed like accommodation for these things, but as I um, got older and learned like in middle school and high school and college even I was like hey you know I might need extra time or I might need someone to help me with this part of the assignment because I can't do it on my own. Yeah what do you think we have to fight against as oh. stereotypes about CP? The that, Well the first thing that comes to my mind is the fact that just because, you know, just because we have a disability doesn't mean we're not intelligent, that we're not capable of learning or communicating, especially. I know, like, several people in my life and some that I would like to be closer to, but not, they, they believe that. They have, they have their own um, internalized ableism there. And I don't think it's a conscious thing but it's definitely still there. Like, just because I speak about my experience as a disabled person and a person with CP doesn't mean that that's the experience of like every disabled person or every person with CP. Absolutely, yeah. And now your involvement in the disability community. Um, can you first define the differences between the social and medical model of disability? Oh, okay. So I actually learned this from what, I don't know if you follow her, but the influencer, Molly Burke, she has retinitis pigmentosa and she's blind. Um, she did a whole YouTube video about the medical versus social model of disability. And when she was growing up, she was for the medical model and like finding a cure for her disease, which is nearly impossible to do but as she's grown older and learned to accept herself she supports the social model 
the medical model is that every disability is a condition that is, um, I'll put this in air quotes, bad and needs to be fixed and cured and things like that. Like that our disability is the problem. We are the problem. Um, the social model of disability takes into account that like we're just humans who happen to be disabled and that, you know, accommodations for our disabilities could make the world better. Like it's a lack of accommodations that make the world inaccessible. Like we are not bad or wrong for having a disability. It's just another part of like the human condition, as they say. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, while it's probably obvious to the both of us, um, which is more appropriate to use, but can you go into a little bit as to why one is more appropriate over the other? I think the social model of disability um, is most appropriate because it reminds us that disabled people are people first and that we deserve to be treated with you know dignity and respect and that we're not the burden that we often see ourselves as or are told that we are. Yeah, I agree 100%. <clears throat> Um, can you tell me about the ableism you've personally faced with the medical treatment? Mm, not so much. I'm trying to think of in like the medical field, the ableism I've experienced. It's not been so much like um, with my CP diagnosis, like, oh, you don't look like you have CP because obviously that's very clear from looking at me because I do use a wheelchair. You know, I don't walk. Uh, it's more so like in recent years when I have brought up the, you know, like, I think I have autism. I think I'm an autistic person. And the number one response I get from every medical professional that I have told that to is, oh, well, you don't look autistic. And I'm like, okay, well, what is autistic supposed to look like? It's, right. It's, yeah. Like, there's been a lot of research done on how autism presents much differently in, you know, females and, like, and AFAB people. Um, it's, like, wildly underdiagnosed in us. You know, the autism criteria was developed for white males. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's more so like on the autism side, but on the CP side, I can't really, just because it's so apparent, I, I can't really recognize any ableism that I have dealt with in the medical community. Not like socially, definitely, but not, not really for medical professionals. Yeah. And I think a lot of people can, you know, a lot of autistic people, right, can relate to that experience of, you know, being invalidated or being told like, hey, you don't seem autistic enough, you know, and yeah, that's a real problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So how would it help us, you know, as a disabled and chronically ill community 
um, for doctors, more doctors to embrace looking at disability through the social model of disability instead. Quite honestly, I think it would um, kind of restore our trust in doctors for the most part, because what I hear mostly is that a lot of disabled people have come to distrust medical professionals because they feel gaslit they don't feel heard or seen or understood like they're told that their problems are all in their head specifically if you have like a chronic illness not just a disability but like a chronic illness like your your pain and your suffering is not really believed so i feel like if people in the medical field doctors nurses what have you um started like embracing the social model of disability like we would trust them more but I I have a hard time thinking of and articulating like how they could do that because that's what medical school is like they're only taught that you know disability is a medical thing so I wouldn't really know how to begin going about like throwing the social model into like medical school studies, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, and you know, that is the question, right? Is how, how can we um, impart that information to the medical schools and, and to make that a, a standard, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and so, okay, so what kind of advocacy do you do? Um, is it specific, does it focus um, only on disability or do you also include other intersections as well? Um, right now it's very like, it's very little, it's few and far between. Like I'm trying to get myself used to doing interviews and podcasts like this one. Um, it's definitely a new experience, but I don't, I don't hate it. Like, I think it's good for me and good for other people too. Um, I mostly focus on disability just because there's not really, you know, I'm a woman, but other than that, like, I don't really meet any other like intersectional criteria. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, tell me about the handmade, the homemade art and crafting. What do you do? Okay, so I figured out a few years ago, I don't know if you have seen on like social media, but there is like something called gym painting. It's only come about in the past like 10 years or so. Like they're little plastic or resin like gyms that you stick to a canvas. Like it's a glue poured canvas and you just make a picture. Like it's like cross stitching, but um, it's like cross stitching with paint by number. It's a very relaxing hobby if you have like a lot of anxiety because it's just like repetitive. I like it, it's very nice. Um, so I figured out that I like that and I'm good at it. So I, I was like, what if I could, you know, print these pictures, make these patterns, make these canvases myself, which I'm in the process of learning how to do. And then like, you know, make, um, paintings of like people's pets like people send me their photographs I get them printed on a canvas I have this pattern in front of me and I complete the project and 
to sell it to them or you know they buy it for me i just think yeah. it's really cool it's, I love that. it's it's different than a photograph i mean it it is a photograph but it's got a little extra layer to it if yeah. you like things that's the way to go yeah. And so what motivates you to craft? Would you say, is it a hobby? Is it, you know, to make a living? Is it to cope with anything? What motivates you? It's all of the above. It's a really nice hobby. Like my partner actually is on the board of our local like makerspace here in Knoxville. And so he's big into arts and crafts and he's kind of gotten started in like finding arts and crafts activities that I would like and I was like hi I'm really good at this and this this kind of distracts me in a healthy way from everything I've got going on mentally so it, I, it helps me cope with anxiety and I'm pretty good at it and it's fun um and like I just wanted to do something different than what I had gone to school for like I still love Spanish and I love being bilingual and the people that that's given me the, the chance to meet and like the things I know about different cultures because of it. But it keeps me in my head, if that makes sense. Like this gets me out of my head and like forces me to do something, like kind of like get out all of the mental energy that I have going on. Yeah. Yeah. What are your favorite art projects that you do? I, like I said, I'm trying to finish up some more gym paintings and I like to kind of piddle around with like perler beads. I don't know if you've heard of them, but I'm probably most, most people around our age did this as a kid. Like you put beads on a board and you iron them and they make like into a certain shape or pattern. Mm. They, like fused together yeah I love that so what are the most accessible art projects that you do that's like I would say that the perler beads are the most accessible because um I like the gym painting but it is it is very tedious after a while and it can kind of wear out your hands if you have uh reduced fine motor skills like I do um but the perler beads are a little bigger and I can just use tweezers and like set them on the board and make my pattern, make my shape, make whatever I need and then have it ironed and completed. And I don't know, I, I've looked up a lot of internet things like patterns and seen other people do pro like big projects on their channels, kind of where I draw inspiration from. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that sounds so cool. Can you, um, if you are comfortable and you have them handy, can you show us examples or and describe them for visual description accessibility? I don't have them with me right now. Mm -hmm. um, would you like me to send descriptions of them and send pictures of them? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. I can do that after the interview if that's okay. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Um, how long does each project take you? Oh, it, it that's it depends on the size. Like, if it's a small perler project, I can't like just a single shape. 
I can get it done in like 30 to 45 minutes. Uh, the larger projects will take a few days. And then the small gym painting canvases. I've done ones that are designed for kids. It's just like a six inch by six inch square with a, um, a design. And that took me about five hours. So, and what they call a full drill canvas where the whole canvas is covered in gems, um, not just part of the canvas, like that can take so long. It depends on like the strength of your hands mm. and what you work and the tools that you use because there are different tools for that too. Like there's a single placer pin where you place one tiny gem at a time. And then there's multi-placers that come in like three or six or nine. So you can lay down like multiples at a time, which speeds things up a little bit. But yeah, it I would say like the websites that sell them and advertise them say that if it's your first time gym painting, it'll probably take you like 30 to 45 hours. It, oh it's, yeah. Wow. Uh, it's worth it. It's it's really satisfying to see something finished that is like that detailed. Definitely. Yeah. Especially, you know, you spend so much time and energy on it. Um, at the end of it, yeah, I can imagine it's very satisfying. Yeah. Do you consider your craft and arts to um, be like OT for you? And for those who don't know, OT in the disability community is occupational therapy. I do. Yeah. And I often commented, like, I actually have a friend who's a physical therapist and her mom's an occupational therapist. I was like, you know, I wish we'd had this around as an OT exercise when I was a kid, like, you know, 20, 25 years ago. But I I was like, I don't want to learn to zip a zipper or tie my shoes. I want to learn to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Like something a little more fun than like learning to tie your shoes. That was really hard and really boring for me. Because I would often miss out on like recess to go to OT. I don't really know how that happened, but I wasn't a happy camper. OT was not my favorite. Do you ever think about um, ways that you can connect your artistry with your advocacy? I have been brainstorming this for the better part of like a year, and I haven't quite arrived at it yet. Yeah, no, I bet yeah. once you figure it out, it's going to be so good um, yeah. because, yeah, combining, yeah, just the being able to combine your passions, you know, that that's very, like a goal. Yeah, for sure. Well, is there anything else that I didn't talk about that you would like to discuss? Not off the top of my head. I will, I'm mentally reminding myself now to send you photos of my project. Much appreciated. Cannot oh. wait to check them out. <laughs> yes. Oh, and I, I did want to ask you a little bit about your degree in Spanish because I'm taking Spanish for one semester, um, for one last semester in college. Um, and I'll be definitely asking for help. But <laughs> <laughs> why was a Spanish degree important to you? When I was in I think my freshman year of high school towards the end of the year I just decided that I was gonna 
go on from Spanish two to Spanish three because Spanish three and four were like honors level courses and you got extra points on your GPA for them. So I was like, I'll just do that to satisfy my like graduation requirements and boost my GPA. I didn't know that I was going to be really good at it. <laughs> and I was like, hey, I'm really good at this. And my Spanish teacher, even outside of Spanish, like we are friends now and he's one of my biggest supporters and basically anything that I do is pretty great. But he, you know, encouraged me to go to college and to study Spanish as a degree and to consider work as an interpreter or translator. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a really big part of my life for a really long time, and it still is, but it's 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 making its way to the side. Like, I'll never put it down completely, but it's just not in the forefront right now. Yeah. Um, and can you, do you have any um, insights that you can share about what it's like for disabled people in Spanish cultures um, and what laws are in place to protect disabled individuals? I do not know much about the legal things. I actually had a really great opportunity to study abroad in Spain in the summer of 2011. And I did meet a couple of people there, a couple of now women who use wheelchairs. And um, if I didn't have them, I don't know that I would have made friends as much as I did. Like they were the first people to see me and like welcome me into their groups. And like, they were like my catalyst for meeting other people and making other friends there who were all able-bodied, but still <laughs> like it, it was just one of those moments where like you see another person in a wheelchair in public and you're like, hello, I see you. Maybe I'll come over and talk to you to make things a little scary. So I'm really grateful for them and they like me had also gone through like uh, one or multiple degree programs I know my my first friend over there she's a wheelchair user she um, has her doctorate and now she works at a hospital in Barcelona as like a biomedical something or other like she's incredibly intelligent and, and like gifted in the sciences um, but I don't know too much about um the laws as far as uh, disability goes over there. I just know that it, it, it's not the most accessible place for sure. I would say this has even, you know, the U.S. has its its faults, but I would say that Spain has a, an even longer way to go as far as like disability law goes and the accessibility of places. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. And um my last question for you is what is something that you've learned from this the disability community or a specific disabled person um, that sticks with you? Hmm. Just, I, I'd say just generally overall, not from one specific person, but especially in the DLC, um, the general tone is like, it's okay to be disabled. Like you are not less of a person for being disabled. I think your life starts to get a lot easier when you can accept and even embrace like the parts of you that you couldn't before. And for me, that is being a disabled person. 
So yeah, it's, it's okay to be disabled. Yeah, yeah, that's um, such an important and often, you know, so often overlooked fact, you know, that yeah, it is okay to be disabled. It's very human, actually. Well, thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation with me. Thank you. Yeah, I hope you have enjoyed it as much as I did. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate all the insights that you provided. And if people wanted to connect with you and support the work that you do, um, where can they do so? I So far, I'm working on multiple, multiple platforms, but the one that is most developed is my Instagram. It, uh, it is at the.disabled.diamond.painter. The Disabled Diamond Painter with dot in between every word. I will also type that out in a message when I send over those uh, photos. Much appreciated. And yes, I will make sure to share everything in my description below. Um, yeah, once again, I'm Sean Gold. Thank you for watching. Make sure you like, comment all your thoughts, and subscribe. I'll see you all next time on another episode of Cripple by Culture.